there we go, uh, for future reference, there's usually a, a nice little shelf underneath for storing water. So I won't be try to get too animated. I won't try to go too Southern Baptist on anybody, so I, I knock the water over. That was a joke, but um, <laughs> I seem to have, not, have lost, thank you, thank you, Deneen. Lost my, my stroke of genius today, this morning. Um, another thing re- regarding the men's advance announcement, any checks, uh, if you want to make a payment for the men's advance, again, see Kent Vincent. He is the one uh, that will be taking the ch- checks. Make them uh, payable to Lion Lamb Church. Um, also, related to uh, Mike's announcement, make sure, put this on your to-read list, okay? Uh, a guy named Ryan T. Anderson and Philip George uh, wrote a book called... Uh, what is marriage? And it's the case for the conjugal view of marriage, which is man, one man, one woman. Uh, read that. If you have um, teens that you're going through worldview, uh, cultural issues, have them read that, digest it. It's an amazing, amazing book. And um, this is aside from what we're uh, discussing. Um, but anyhow, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, it is a good morning to see everybody here. We're back into uh, the gym, and so we can all smell the smells of new construction, new floors being refurnished, and um, it is good to be back here. It's good to see how God has provided for us over and over again, and even the fact that we are in a, uh, we have a building now that's too big, and, and, and yet in His provision, we have this place so that we can continue to meet and have Sunday school, and so I'm glad for that. Um, Mike mentioned last week that we are going to start a study, uh, a six-part series called Here We Stand. Um, and that is, uh, it gets its cue or gets its title from Martin Luther, and he talked about the diet of uh, worms or verms, um, in which uh, he's being tried by the Catholic Church um, because he believes uh, in justification of faith alone, not by works. And they're asking him to recant, and he makes a statement, uh, here I stand, I can do no other. And uh, you guys may not know this or not, but the, the elders... Of the church, and I'm not an elder. I'm I'm just a, a part of the staff. They've they have said we want to sh- shepherd uh, the people at Lion and Lamb Church well. We want to shepherd them, and part of what me- it means to be good shepherds is to take the time to work through uh, statements of faith that are essential to the Christian life. That we want to be fully orbed and and not being um, ignorant in the fact that everybody knows what we mean when we talk about. Uh, servant leadership, or the gospel, or sanctification. And so this is the beginning of a series in which we just want to take uh, key statements of faith and belief and say these are foundational to the faith. Uh, there are times when we, in our, in our statement of faith, if you go online and read it, you'll say, well, uh, there's nothing that talks about the end times. You know, so are we a pre-trib church, or are we a post-trib church? Are we pre-mill, or are we all-mill? And the question is, yes. That within the body, there are people that hold to those different views. And we say that's okay, we, that there is enough, um, there is enough uh, grace in those views to be held that we can be on leadership together, we can uh, work together, we can worship together as the body of Christ here at Lion and Lamb, and, and, and that we can hold those things uh, loosely. But then there's other things that we say, no, uh, we have to make a stand. This is, this is the line in the sand, and we're going to, we would, you know, we would die on that hill if it came down to it, if, if somebody said, uh, you know, where, what's your stand on the Trinity? We want to say, here's our stand. This is what we be, believe the Bible clearly teaches. And so we want to not only talk about the Trinity, but also other roles in these series. So um, with that, would you all pray with me, bow your heads in prayer?
Father God, we do uh, thank you, Lord, that you have um, met us here and provided for us. And Father, we are, are thankful that you not only provide for us, but that there is this giving nature uh, to your character. Lord, that you, you give us your Son, Jesus, in whom we see not only living a perfect life, but really also um, inviting us in to experience the love and peace that is um, enjoyed and shared in the Godhead. Lord, I know that this is a topic that uh, can either be incredibly boring or incredibly complicated. And Father, I pray that neither would, neither would be true today, that in your word there is clarity and that we would run to your word. And Lord, there is life to be had in enjoying the triune Lord. Father, would you come now and enlarge our hearts and open our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, many of you know that I work for um, Topeka Young Life uh, here. This is, this is another hat that I wear uh, being on staff with Lion and Lamb Church. And so I work for Topeka Young Life as well with Washburn University students. And a couple weeks ago, we were hosting a tailgate um, for a Washburn football game. And as I'm setting up and getting these um, t-shirts out, we're handing out t-shirts, uh, one of the students comes and, and, and starts talking to me, and she has a friend with her. And as she needs to leave, uh, her and her uh, friend and I, we start conversing with each other, and I can tell that she has an accent, that she's more than likely not from the States, but you can't assume that really anymore. Um, and so I, I asked her, I said, well, where are you from originally? And she said, Turkey. And I was like, well, I've been to Turkey. And so we started talking, and um, I, she started mentioning how she had been to uh, organizations like Christian Challenge, and she's gone to church here in, in um, Topeka, and, and just her experiences with the church. So I asked her, I said, are you a Christian? Um, because that just seemed like a natural uh, question to ask her. And she said um, this, she said, there is much about Christianity that I like, uh, but growing up in a Muslim culture, I find the Trinity, the topic of the Trinity, too difficult and obscure to believe that it could be true. I mean, just the idea that God is three persons seems absolutely unreasonable. And so we, we had a talk um, about what that meant, and um, it, was a, it was actually a great conversation. But what I want to kind of capture there is that perhaps some of you are like this young girl. I don't assume that everybody here is a Christian, um, and I don't assume that everybody holds that we believe that God is, is three in one. And so maybe you're like her, you're like, yeah, you're right. Like, the idea of the Trinity is absolutely unreasonable. It, it, it sort of offends rational minds, okay? And so there, there's that. I want to take that in consideration. But then other people here might say, no, I believe the Trinity, that the Trinity is true. Like, I read your statement of faith and can say, yes, uh, that's how God has expressed himself. But if, if somebody were to ask you, um, what is the Trinity, I mean, I don't see it in the Bible, so how, how can you believe in something that's not necessarily there in the Bible? Well, we'd start flipping the pages, wouldn't we? And we'd be lost at words. Okay, uh, well, I know I believe in the Trinity, but I'm not really sure where to go. I don't even know where to start and what that means. And so maybe there, there, that's a, an example. That's a problem. And then there's a third person, right? And the third person would say, no, I, I believe in the Trinity. I can show you in Scripture where it talks about God being a plurality of persons. But if somebody said, but what does that mean for me? What does that mean with regards to my spiritual life? Well, you'd sit back and, like me, maybe say, I'm not sure. 
And so uh, that's, that's the reality of, of this topic. Somebody said, man, you really drew the short stick today with having to talk about the Trinity. And so my goal is to not commit heresy. If I do anything else, it's not to commit heresy. But despite all that, you know, it's interesting. You go to our statement of faith and you see the first thing that we talk about is God. God is one, and then we talk about the Trinity. And in every church's statement of faith, it almost always starts about the nature of God. And in Christian churches, it's almost always talking about the Trinity. And yet, if you ask most members of the church to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity and the implications that it has on our lives, we would, most of us would not even know where to begin to start. And so today, we just want to be intentional of looking about what God says and what God discloses about himself because the truth of the matter is, is that God has revealed himself in Scripture to be both three in persons and yet one. And so in that, we must, because of that revelation, we must worship the triune Lord. Now, I have not seen anybody rolling their eyes or yawning. And I would ask, please, please, uh, let, me, let me get your attention. Um, this is different. Usually I'll pick a text and I'll, I'll talk about the text and we'll, we'll dig into that. But this is much more topical and on your study sheet, there's a lot of verses. And we're not going to cover every verse. This is just a starting point. So that you can go home um, and look at them uh, with your, you know, yourself or with your family. And I would encourage you to do that. But the, the, one of the important things about talking, to, why we need to talk about the Trinity, is that if you look in church history, almost every heresy, almost every cult, starts with a sort of divergent view of the Godhead. Right? They'll say, well, you know, Jesus, he was actually created at some point before humanity was created, right? Like Jehovah Witnesses. And, and, and people will say, well, I don't know what to make of that. Um, they, don't know, they, don't know, they don't have a response. You know, um, other people might say, um, no, it's, it's more like God is different modes. Like at one point he's the father and then he becomes the son um, and then he becomes the spirit. And so we want to be very uh, clear and concise by what we mean. So let me start by providing a working definition of what we mean when we say Trinity. And it's on your handout. It's that this, the testimony of Scripture teaches that there is only one God who exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, equal in attributes in nature, yet different in how they relate to one another and the means by which each person in the Godhead accomplishes their unified uh, purposes. Yes, that is a lot. And that's intentional. We want to be very clear in what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. The, there's two points that I want to talk about that is, is especially uh, helps clarify what we mean when we refer to the Trinity. The first is this, that God is one. That God is one. What do we mean when we say God is one? Well, perhaps a better way to start is to uh, start with what we don't mean. When we say that God is, God is one, what we don't mean when we say God is one is that God is a composite of parts, right? Like th- there's not one-third of the God that's God the Father, and then another part of God is, is God the Son, and then another part up here is, is uh, God, God the Holy Spirit, and those three parts, those thirds, composite one God. No, that's, that's not right. That's not what we say. We say that God is in essence... And you can go to the Lion and Lamb statement of faith to see this, that God is essentially one person, one being. If you feel your head beginning to hurt, that's okay. Because, and we'll get to some of this, this mystery that's involved, but that he is, he is one in, in essence and in, in being um, one God. 
Also, when we say that, one, that God is one, we mean that God is one. Like He's one in number, but he's also the only God. That there are no other gods. And that may, be, that may seem like an easy thing for us to agree to today, but in Israel's context of ancient Near Eastern um, idolatry, that was a big deal. So in Deuteronomy 6.4, there's this term that's used to, that, that talks about the prayer that's in Deuteronomy 6.4, and it's called the Shema, which means in Hebrew, to hear. And, and so uh, today in, in Jewish, uh, practicing Jewish um, homes, uh, the family will recite the Shema, and it's to hear. Well, what are they to hear? They are to hear that God is one. God, the Lord alone, of is, is, is who Israel is to serve and to worship. He is the God whom which they are making a covenant with. They are not to align themselves, to worship, to serve any other God, but the true God that has um, given, them, given um, his covenant to them in um, the Lord of the Old Testament. Similarly, in Deuteronomy 32.39, it states this, See now that I myself am he, there is no God beside me. Isaiah 45.22 says this about the Lord, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We sing that song occasionally, You are God, there is no other. That we are affirming that not only God is one in essence, but he is also, there is no other God in existence. It is only the Lord. Last, um, Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Um, if you, looking at your study sheet, I included some passages about worship, related to worship, and how um, in different parts of Scripture, uh, the Father is being talked about as a, as a point of worship, and they're worshiping the Father, and they're worshiping the Holy Spirit, and then also the Son. And I just want to bring our, bring our attention to that passage, um, or the, the, those uh, references, Matthew 28, 9, and 10. Um, in that passage, Jesus has just, uh, he's been resurrected, and he's meeting the disciples. And what do the disciples immediately do? Well, they begin to worship him. Jesus doesn't turn them away. He accepts the worship that they are, um, that they are offering to Jesus. Now, in Acts, all right, Paul and Peter, similar situations in which they're doing something uh, extraordinary or something extraordinary is about to take place. And immediately, people begin to worship in, bo- in different stories, Peter and Paul. And what do they do? Stop it. Don't worship me. I'm just a man. Get up. You're blasphemy. You know, like, no, don't do that. So it's, what's beautiful is that when Jesus is being worshiped, he doesn't turn from that. He doesn't deny that. He doesn't say, no, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do. He accepts it. And so um, in, in those passages that I've demonstrated that all three members of the Godhead in one way or another through Scripture are being worshiped and praised. And so there is this unity in being in essence, but also in the fact that there is a one God and that those three persons are God. You know, the, the interesting about that, if God is one, then it makes, it kind of gives us a, a sense of why idolatry is so uh, off the mark, right? Because Adam and Eve, you know, they're, they're, we are to worship God, and we are by nature created to be worshiping beings. And what we see in the garden in Adam and Eve in the fall in Genesis 3 is that there's a redirection of, of worship, partially because of pride and also because of sort of misguided love, misguided affections that 
that they're enjoying fellowship with God in the garden, and yet suddenly when the, the serpent comes onto the scene, you see Eve and Adam having their affections, having their love, having their devotion turned from God, true worship from God, to something else. And, and that really gets to the heart of idolatry and what we mean by when we talk about idolatry. I, I said this, uh, idolatry is rooted in misguided affections and a pride-filled heart. And Isaiah 44, 9 through 22 does a great job of talking about the abs- absurdity of worshiping idols. You know, he talks about you're, you're, you're fashioning this idol, you're cutting it um, from wood, you carve it out and you kneel to it. And then in summary, it's like, but then you lop off the other end and you use the other end for fire, for food. You know, and how, how just absurd that is. And, and for us, we can say, well, you know, the idea that God is one, that's not really a huge uh, problem for me. And I would say, well, let's think about that for a second, right? Because if we're worshiping beings, if we are created to worship God by nature, then ultimately that means that sometimes we are worshiping the Lord and sometimes we're worshiping something else, right? Because if you look, if we're just honest, sometimes we have no problem worshiping God, but at other times we can be captivated by money and greed and performance and approval and power. And, and so this idea that, that, that idolatry is only something that affected uh, people in the Old Testament, well, we, we need to also be aware that it also can affect us as well. There's a guy, an author, and I read this earlier this week, about a, a writer and intellectual named David Foster Wallace. And, and I don't know if you've heard of him. I hadn't heard about him until I read this this article, um, but he was a writer, and he was an intellectual, and he was really well known, especially for being a postmodern writer. And he did a, um, a, a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and years before, a couple years afterwards, he committed suicide. He wasn't a believer, um, but he says this about the idea of worship and the fact that we're worshiping creatures. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. You worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over those to numb, numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious, they are default settings. And we would say, yes, they are evil and, and, and um, sinful, right? Because true worship is worshiping God. But isn't that true? Isn't a guy that didn't even know the truth of the gospel, doesn't he hit the nail on the head? That, yeah, we may not struggle with uh, worshiping an idol like Krishna in Hinduism, but we are in our beings geared towards, bent towards worship. And whether it's power, whether it's love, right? I just want my, my spouse to love me more, then I'd be happy. I want my child to love me more and give me affection, then I'd be happy. I, or approval, if I could just make a name for myself, if I, could just, if I could get that promotion, then then I'd be satisfied, 
right? We, we say that those are all forms of idolatry, that those are all, in some sense, representations of not worshiping the one God. Ultimately, He is the one in whom we are supposed to worship. Now, I'll hit application more towards that third point, so I just wanted to touch that and then uh, move on to the second. Um, the second is that this, that God is actually revealed as three, that there is a plurality of persons within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That each one of them have, are distinct, that they're not individual persons. No, that they are somehow, God is one, and yet there are three persons, three personalities. They are all eternal. Um, they all, um, yeah, have personalities. And so, I, yeah, I have to be, again, very careful in what I mean. Um, in the Bible, there are, there are oftentimes, many times, that they use what's called triads, right? And triads mean uh, that, that you kind of see this echo, this glimpse of the Trinity. And so, uh, for instance, while it's not explicitly stated, oftentimes, and I wrote this on your, um, your outline, uh, the, the classic sort of example is the Great Commission. And what does Jesus say when he's sending out his disciples, go therefore and making, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And then oftentimes in Peter and Paul's writings, they'll, they'll begin their letters and end their letters with these different sort of, trin- they call them Trinitarian formulas. You know, praise be to God the Father, and, and the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And, and so that, that seems really uh, rather straightforward. What I'd rather do is talk about each person in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and discuss how they were related to one another, and then also how it relates to us. So starting with uh, God the Father, Scripture teaches, and I actually believe it's pretty, pretty plain, that God is not only a Father in character, but God has also always been a Father, that there is eternality to His fatherhood. That he's always, uh, from eternity past, been a Father. In Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel His firstborn son, in Deuteronomy 1.31, God carries his people as a father carries his son. Um, Psalm 103.13 states, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Jesus often refers to God the Father, right? And when he tells his disciples and tells his people how to pray, what does he say? He says, as you start, start by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's an eternality to uh, God has eternally been father, the, a father. And, and, and that's significant in a lot of ways, but that is a very beautiful thing. The best possible father that you can imagine and infinitely more is God the Father. Oftentimes when we talk about God, you know, we start those conversations, it's like, well, let's have a conversation about God's omnipotence. You know, God's all-powerful. Or let's talk about how God is omniscient. And what I think that we, we miss, that that is very important, we need to have those conversations, is that we, we need to start with, okay, how does the Bible refer to him? How does God refer to himself? And as I was studying for this, man, Father comes up over and over and over and over again. Martin Luther uh, makes the same comment of, about the idea of starting with, with regards to God as the fatherly character of the Father when he says this, for although the whole world has most, most carefully sought to understand the nature, mind, and activity of God. It is hard, it has had no success in this whatever. But God himself has revealed and disclosed the deepest, 
profundity or profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexpressible love. John Calvin says this, and he begins his, his, his work called the Institutes with, with a discussion of the father, fatherly nature of God. He says, we ought in the very order of things diligently contemplate God's fatherly love. God's fatherly love. Now I know, because I've heard enough stories, and I know uh, many of you as my friends, that the idea of starting, the starting point of discussion is God as Father is in some sense heartbreaking, right? Because my dad was never around. Or if he, was, if he wasn't uh, around, he was there and he was present, he was abusive. He was manipulative. And so the, the thing that you might say is, man, the idea of, of God the Father is in some sense terrifying. And I want to say, I want to acknowledge the fact, first and foremost, that we have a, father, a fathering crisis in our country. Like, it's, it's pretty obvious just doing youth work enough to see that as present. But the problem that we have is that we often begin the discussions of God's fatherhood with the examples that we have um, in our lives. And the, and the thing is this, is that God doesn't get his cues of what it means to be a father by the role of men being fathers. Does that make sense? Like, God, God is a father, and it's the men who choose to to um, forsake and to abuse and to, um, to discard their role, their true calling as fathers, like they're the ones that need to be questioned. They're the ones that aren't living up to the obligations that God has put, them, put for them and demonstrated in his tenderness, in his love, in his kindness that he shares to his people. And so I don't want to quickly sweep over the idea that God is fa- you know, father and, and not... Um, acknowledge the fact that we have been given, that some of us have been given bad examples of fatherhood. But I, what I do want to say is that God, God, it, it, the way in which he manifests himself as father is, is beautiful. And this really shows up in, in the Godhead itself. Oftentimes, you know, you see these on boards. It's kind of like the trump card, like God is love, right? Meaning whatever you're going to talk about, like if you're not doing it lovingly, I'm going to discard what you have to say. Right, And so uh, we hear that a lot, God is love, but let me just say that that is a beautiful statement about the, the triune nature of God. Right? Because if we think of God the Father eternally, like in order for that to be true, that he had from eternity past always had a son in which he could manifest his love and direct his love towards him. Meaning the idea that God somehow created this, this uh, son Jesus, which is a false teaching, which some people will hold, is... It, it, it defies and, it, and it, um, it is a treason to what Scripture teaches, which is that God in eternity has always loved His Son. And, that, and within the Godhead, there's this beautiful love that is going on between the Father who loves perfectly, who loves graciously, is loving the Son, and the Son is reciprocating that back in, in the Godhead and from eternity um, and going on into eternity. And so uh, Jesus says in John 5.36, um, Excuse me, in John 5, uh, the Father loves the Son, but it's also the Father who initiates the work of redemption and sending His Son in John 5, 36. So in the Father, you also get the lead. He's the head of the Godhead. He's initiating His redemptive purposes. He's sending out His Son, and the Son submits, which we'll get to in just this next point. But there's this beautiful relationship. And so, um, yeah, God is a God who's not only father, uh, fatherly, but He is a life giving, nurturing father. 
The second one uh, that we have to talk, I mean, not half, but we want to talk about is God as Son. In the Old Testament, Isaiah provides a host of passages with regards to how the, ma- the Messiah will manifest himself. And in Isaiah 9, he, he gives these titles for the Messiah. And he, he says things like, that, that you will call him Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. But also he says, you will call, them, call him Mighty God and Everlasting Father. And so um, we know in that that there's expectation that we see in Jesus that he's not only man, but he's also fully man and fully God, that he is um, the second member in the Trinity. John, uh, John's gospel starts out in chapter 1, and that there was the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The author of Hebrews states, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Paul says in Colossians that Jesus is the Son of the the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. The second member, the the Son has from eternity uh, past enjoyed His relationship, His status as being a Son of the living God within, contained within the Godhead. The Son does what the Father wants Him to do. In John 14, He says, uh, The world must know that I love the Father and that I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. So Jesus is getting His, his mission purposes from, from God as God. The Father is, as the head. Jesus is living and working out God's purposes for redemption in the Gospels. But also, the Son doesn't, the son doesn't just work out His purposes. He's also there, what? To reveal the character and nature of God. And ultimately, He's inviting us to participate in the love that the, that the Son has for the Father and the Father has for the Son. Now, this is going to get abstract. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. But there's this idea that we're u- united with Christ. That when we believe that we are actually united with Christ and that all the benefits that a father would want to give to their son that that person that has been adopted, that's been grafted in, that they too get to enjoy and partake in the wonderful, beautiful blessings of God the Father as he relates to the Son. That's right. Praise God. So, so we see in the, in, the, in the Son, as he loves the Father, we get these echoes of God's love that we are supposed to have for God himself. And if this isn't just enough, that the Father and Son have coexisted in eternity in one being enough, there's a third, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is often kind of seen as, as people refer to it as kind of like in the backdrop, right? And maybe that's true, but you know, if you read your Bible enough, you'll see that the Holy Spirit, its activity is all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament. So in, in Genesis 1, it says that the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters, in Judges, uh, when Samson is, is being sort of, uh, innate, has this incredible strength, and you'll see this in the Judges, when he raises up a judge, that oftentimes at the, it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon that person, right? That, that part of uh, God was raising up a person to deliver his people. In um, First and Second Samuel, you see uh, the anointing of Saul and David, and as soon as they're anointed, that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon them. And then you have the prophets who talk about um, that the Spirit of the Lord gives them this vision and this is what they see. And so you see the, the Holy Spirit is at work all over the pages of the Scriptures. And so these are a few that I've kind of, I kind of uh, noted that we see as far as the role of the Holy Spirit as it relates to the Godhead and what, what it's doing is, is first that the Holy Spirit gives himself. 
In Romans 5.5, Paul says this, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That the Holy Spirit dwells within us um, for those that know Jesus. That also the Spirit gives us new life. It gives us a new heart. Ezekiel 36.26 talks about being given a heart of flesh. That now that we're, we have this new heart, we're able to obey God's uh, covenant John 3, 3 through 8 talks about being born again, that through the Spirit we are given a new life, a new spirit. This is, the, this is one, it's all good, but this is the one that I love. It's Romans um, 8, 15 through 17. And it's, that, it's this, that the Holy Spirit confirms in our, in our hearts that we are children of the living God. It says this, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again, Rather, the Spirit you received brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What a beautiful picture that the Holy Spirit in times in which we're struggling, in times in which we're in despair, that the Holy Spirit is inside of us affirming the fact that we are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. If you know Jesus, if you, if you know him as, as your Lord, then I can say with confidence that you are a son or daughter of the living God. That you are a child of King Jesus. And I, I love that, that the, that the Holy Spirit is, is serving to affirm our calling, affirm our adoption, but then also there's this idea that the Holy Spirit is caring about the will of the Father. Father. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit is called the teacher of the church. Regularly the Holy Spirit would come upon the prophets, enabling them, as I mentioned earlier, to speak God's word. Jesus also promises that the Spirit will give his word to the disciples in Matthew 10.20. So from the perspective of the Trinity, the Father is the speaker, the Son is the word, and we see that in John 1, and then the breadth of the Spirit carries the word to the hearers and brings about their response. So you're probably having some trouble getting this wrapped around your head. So let me give you a simple illustration of how we can comprehend the Trinity. Okay? So the God's like water, right? There's three different types of states of water. Gas, liquid. Have you guys heard this one before? Gas, liquid, and solid. But wait a second. Three in one. So in order to be the Trinity, or in order that, that illustration to be true, God would have, the water would have to be all three at the same time. It can't just be one moment gas, right? One moment liquid, one moment solid. That's modalism. That's the idea that God operates in three different modes, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that at different times in history. No, we don't believe that. That's not what, that's not what we affirm. Okay, so that doesn't work. So what about this? St. Patrick, right? We love St. Patrick. You know, he's, he holds up the clover leaf, and he says, like, God is like three parts of a clover leaf, right? Well, you have the one part here, one part there, one part there. Wait a second, that's, that's partialism. That's, that's that idea again that God is three parts making up one. So, I don't know, like, what kind of analogies, and we've read these, right? Illustrations that go over and over and over and over again trying to explain something that blows our mind. And let me illustrate this for you clearly. There is no illustrations that talk about and articulate the Godhead and the significance and the mystery of the Godhead. Illustrations only lead, almost always, almost lead to false teaching. 
right? So I can't illustrate in, in any profound sense of what it means for God to be both one and triune. We can talk about it in relationships, and I'll get to that. But, but to get a clear kind of grasp of what God is in the Trinity, we're not, pur- we're not, we, we're not giving access to that type of knowledge, and, and it's okay. Like God, the God that we worship is beyond what we can contain in our minds. He is indescribable. And so, um, now that we, we see that God is one and that God is three, that it's a mystery beyond what we can comprehend, there are some, some cues in which this, this idea that we worship a triune Lord in which that shapes how, it, how um, we go about life. And I think the best, the best if there was a, a good illustration of what it means is the first point on application, it's gender roles. What does it mean to be man and woman within the context of worshiping a triune Lord? Now, I want to speak both carefully and clearly so that I don't lose anyone here on this because this is, this is kind of the sensitive issue and, uh, and I want to be careful, but I also want to be true where, where Scripture is true. So in the Godhead, the Father declares the will. He is the head of the Godhead. He declares the will of 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 God and the Son carries out the will. He submits to the Father's will. He carries out His will. And Paul, picking up on this and writing to issues related to man and woman, says this, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So the connection is, um, what do we make of that? Well, this is what we believe as a church. This is what I believe personally and we believe at home is that that God creating a man and woman represents in some sense the plurality of the Godhead in which the father is leading his head and as the, the son submits, so the husband leads, by, by, leads through love and service, servant leadership, and the woman submits in humility and in kindness to her husband's lead. Now I know I've lost a few of you there. However, this is what people say, that sounds so patriarchal, that sounds so... Um, yeah, think of other words that people might say. They sound so ridiculous, right? We've we've heard that. I've heard that. And I want to say, but wait a second. In in the Godhead, would would you at any moment say that Jesus, because he submits to the Father, that in some way he has less value or less worth? No. Jesus isn't, because he's submitting to the Father, doesn't make him less of a person. And, and, and though God has given man and woman different roles and different responsibilities and different callings by, by definition of who they are as persons, it doesn't make one over and against the other somehow more superior. No, no man in, that serves on this leadership team would ever believe that. No, that we are equal but different. And God, in the Godhead, there are, it is equal, right, in essence, but different in the roles and in the persons. And so we get this beautiful picture of what it means to be man and woman in the Godhead. And also, we learn about community. Um, that we are made for community. I had a professor say that he believes, a Trinity, believes in the Trinity because we are fundamentally communal creatures. And there's more to this related to um, our last point. Um, so I'm going to breeze past community um, and move to evangelism. This is something that I'm going to keep hitting every time I talk. Because as Mike talks about, you know, you could read your Bible and that's a good place to start. I'm going to say, you know what you could be doing right, you know, after church or in your life? Being intentional about sharing the gospel. And I don't have to say that as just kind of this blanket statement, right? I have 
the triune Lord who is not secretive. He's not like some families who are private and hidden. No, he's, he, he's gushing out in his creative purposes in this beautiful community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He, he's creating and he's creating us in his image and he's inviting us to, through the, the, through the Son to partake in the love that he shares with the Son and we're to be a part of that. And so in our hearts, like if, if this isn't just starting to stir affections in our hearts for the love that God has for us, so much so that I can't help but share the gospel, then in all bluntness, I don't know how much the love that you have for Christ actually exists. Right? I'm, I, I'm not being mean, but if somebody says, I don't share the gospel, that's not what I'm gifted in, then that's a real problem. You fundamentally do not understand what it means to affirm and worship and declare the truth of the Trinity. That we are, uh, by, by nature, by design, um, in God bringing new life into our hearts, meant to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. And so I just want to ask, how are you doing in that area? Who have you talked to this week? or have, have you prayed in the last week or last month, saying, Lord, would you present opportunities for me to share the gospel? All right? The last point is this, that the, the, the implication of worshiping the triune Lord, it, it relates to our spiritual growth. Some call this life in the Trinity. One thing uh, that Christians believe is that when we become saved, again, that we are united with Christ. And so in our union with Christ, we get to draw upon the love that the Father has for the Son. And so to grow spiritually, in some sense, is meaning to grow deeper and deeper in what it means to love Jesus. And we see in the Lord his pattern of love. He loves his people. How do we know he's, he loves his people? Because he's faithful to his people. He makes promises to them. He does not go back on his promises to them. He's faithful. And for us, how are we faithful to the Lord? By obeying. That's not a fun word for a lot of us to hear, but by obeying God and his word. That is how we reciprocate and we, we draw from the love that God shares with the Son. And so this, it's just this beautiful interplay of 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 God's inner, inner workings of, of Him loving the Father, or the Father loving the Son, and the Son loving back, and the Spirit um, working together in, in, in unison to accomplish God's purposes. And so, with that, here we stand. This is the line in the sand, right? We, this is something that we will not sort of negotiate on. This is something that we believe. It's too marvelous and mysterious for us to understand and John, uh, John Calvin, I, I love this about him, is that when he would be writing, sometimes he'd get to a point in his writing in which he was so overcome with what the, what the majesty of God, the character of God, that he would literally break out in doxology. He would begin praising God. Uh, one scholar said that if, if doctrine does not cause you to worship, that after you've heard doctrine, that it does not cause you to worship, then we have missed the, missed the mark. And I hope that that is not the case, that if we've, as we've seen what it means to be and to worship the triune God, that we are ready to just gush out and worship for what the, Lord, um, the Lord's purposes and the Lord's work in our lives and in our kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, um, I do thank you for today. I do thank you for this church and the people that are here, Lord. It is easy to kind of um, to check out in, either, in two ways, either to check out until we get to worship 
or to check in during the teaching and check out during worship. And Lord, I pray that we would do neither. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be enlarged by the truth that you have revealed yourself as one God in three persons and that in that mystery, in that beauty, in that clarity, Lord, that we would want to worship a God who is much, much, much larger than our minds could ever imagine. Lord, would you uh, stir in our hearts a desire to worship you? And Lord, Father, I pray for those that may not know you. Lord, that um, get, getting a taste, a glimpse of the greatness of God, we would desire a relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.